what has been more difficult uh, with terror conspiracy or boy from heaven is that the distributor in the middle east gave the film back after khan just gave it back i can't work with it he said i'm being punished by and he was based in lebanon he was just saying like i cannot sell this film in the middle east it's impossible Hi there, this is Ari Stein, and you're listening to the 52 Insights Podcast. This week, I'm sitting down with the Egyptian-Swedish filmmaker Tarek Saleh to discuss his forthcoming controversial feature film, Cairo Conspiracy. His latest offering is a uniquely charged and an emotional examination of the uncomfortable relationship between church and state in Egypt. It's an area of the world that is often neglected in terms of its cultural visibility, especially in the West. Soleil works to break down barriers and stereotypes that limit the discussion around the Arabic world, especially at a time when sentiment of the Islamic world in the West remains fairly low, and where polarization and anger have become knee-jerk reactions for many. He's earned accolades across the world for his impactful but short library of work, Saleh is able to push people's consciences into corners they are generally uncomfortable with, often using thriller-type backdrops to explore issues related to politics and religion. In this discussion, Saleh and I delve into his uncomfortable background growing up in Sweden, why the Arab world still attracts such negative connotations in the West, why Egypt refuses to allow him into the country, We talk about the red line, free speech, and having the courage despite those dangers. What went wrong with the Arab Spring and his optimism and hope for the world at large. This is a discussion I enjoyed immensely. Tariq Saleh will speak with me at a special event in Stockholm called The Bleak Talks with 52 Insights on April 18th, a free event. It will be a fascinating further insight into his life and politics. I urge you not to miss it details on the website. And now, my talk with Tariq Saleh. Tariq Saleh, thank you so much for joining me on the 52 Insights podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So from what I know about you, understand about you, we both live in the same city, Stockholm, beautiful, wonderful, picturesque city, but you are a filmmaker with a conscience is probably a good way to describe you. And we don't have enough of those filmmakers today. We've had in the past, or I've sat down with filmmakers like the Oscar-winning Brian Fogel, who has explored similar territory to you. And I think what unites filmmakers such as yourself and Brian is fearlessness that you share. You're equally someone who isn't afraid to broach controversial topics. And I know you've covered a range of contentious themes Mm -hmm. from Guantanamo Bay to autocratic theocracies, if you can call it that, such as Egypt in your latest film, Cairo Conspiracy, and even documenting some parts of the life of Che Guevara. So you're not afraid to stoke the fire, and I love that, and we're going to explore that, whether it be political or social commentary. And I've seen your film, Cairo Conspiracy, although I should say where we are, it's in Sweden, it's called Boy From Heaven. It's a brilliant, emotionally persuasive film, and more so just being built on the intricacies of Egyptian fundamentalism and, and red tape and bureaucracy and state security, it left me feeling, no spoilers here for our audience, but it left me feeling quite emotional. 
And the reason is, A, it's hard to kind of pinpoint this kind of vacuum it left me in. There's this particular scene, and I won't spoil it for anyone out there, but that scene kind of typified the entire film. But it's really about, for me, it's an indictment of religion. It might not be about the same for you, or even about the banality of religion and ideologies. But before we get into your film, The Brilliant Cairo Conspiracy, I thought for our audience, it would be really good if you could just enlighten us about who Tariq Saleh is and a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, <laughs> that is always the most difficult uh, question to answer because uh, you spend your whole life trying to figure out who you are, especially as an artist or as a filmmaker. But if I would introduce myself, I would say that I'm Swedish Egyptian filmmaker. My father is Egyptian. My mother is Swedish. I was born in Sweden, but being born in Sweden in the early 70s was complicated as a son of an immigrant because you were never fully allowed to embrace sort of your, to be Swedish. I was asked since I was very small, like, where are you from? And I, I said, I'm from Sweden, you know, because I was born here. And I gave up sometime around seven. I just started to say, I'm from Egypt. But the first time I visited Egypt, I was 10 years old. So, and then I started to go regularly. And so to answer that question, I would say that today I am a filmmaker that lives in Sweden and I have Egyptian background. So I've stopped being very interested in who I am. <laughs> Mm-hmm. One reason for that is that I'm more interested in the things I do than who I am. And I know it's very, how could I say, today with the discussions about identity politics and who tells what story and I feel, you know, people get offended and people... I come from a different time where actually, for me, the work is the most important thing. It's not who I am. Mm. There is a sense at the moment, I think that feeling continues even in our society today, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tariq, that perhaps narratives about the Arab world are slightly pushed aside, or they have a fringe-like quality. It is imperative for you and important, and you have in your last two or three films explored stories of not only Egypt, but the Arabic world. That is important for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as a filmmaker, I think, or as a storyteller, or as an artist, you're both an insider and an outsider. And that is something you have to accept. So I think that the greatest filmmakers in history, for me, has been either children of immigrants or, or immigrants themselves. I mean, there are some exceptions like Kurosawa, but still Kurosawa was both an insider and an outsider in the way he told stories. So you'll have people like Billy Wilder or Milos Forman or Coppola or Scorsese that is both insiders and outsiders in the country where they are making films, right? And I see myself in that tradition that in many ways, it's complicated. I mean, what you're saying is that Because there are two, of course, two versions of Arabic film. First, you have the big Egyptian film industry that is one of the biggest film industries in the world. And and where, because, I mean, you have a billion people that speaks Arabic. So, of course, that's a huge market. And Egypt have always been the Hollywood of the Middle East. 
But at the same time, those films does not travel outside of the Arabic-speaking population. Then you have the Arabs uh, portrayed in Western film, right? And they are always the villain. I mean, that's just how it is. Or a victim, somehow. Or there is this sort of... But like for me, of course, being both inside and outside and being having a foot in both these cultures, I see that there is sort of a gap, a void, where there has been almost no stories told. And where I felt that, yeah, why has no one told mm-hmm. these stories? You know, why? And what are people afraid of? Yeah. Well, in my own small opinionated corner, I would say that we have a long way to go until we welcome the general Arabic narrative back into the international community. And that is for not fear of being called out here. But I would say over the last 20 years, I'm reading a great book by Jeremy Bowen, is the lead BBC correspondent. It's about the history of the modern Middle East. And the reputation of the Arab world is is so besmirched that I think in so many ways, people have been totally frightened to go anywhere near Arabic stories, especially, as you said, in the Western world. So I think you've done a brave thing. Uh, Was it hard to sell Cairo conspiracy into some territories or get people to buy into it? It wasn't difficult to finance the film because I think that, first of all, the film I had done before that, the Nile Hilton incident, had been very successful in terms of the box office in France and also in Sweden. So, I mean, people had made money from it, which is always sort of the safe way to finance your next film, right? Yeah. So it wasn't difficult to finance the film, but what was difficult and what has been more difficult with Terror Conspiracy or Boy From Heaven is that the distributor in the Middle East gave the film back after Cannes, just gave it back. I can't work with it. He said, I'm being punished by, and he was based in Lebanon. He was just saying like, I cannot sell this film in the Middle East. It's impossible. Now, is is that because the way it portrays the Sunni Muslim world in general, or you're scrutinizing the Arabic world too much? What What is the feedback? No, what is controversial in Cairo conspiracy is politics. It's not religion. And that is sort of the biggest misunderstanding about in the West is that there is this image of Islam as being a super sensitive religion. And it's not. It's not. It has certain red lines. And I'm an artist, so I don't believe in red lines. But I mean, there are certain red lines in Sunni Islam that where there is uh, to depict uh, the prophet or to sort of smear the Quran. But other than that, it's very open to criticism, also within. So there is a hypercritical discussion within Islam that people, but I mean, in the West, I mean, people don't know that because they've, they're busy painting up this image of the Arabic world as not human. And this is very dangerous, of course. We know from history that when you take a people and paint them out as not being human, there's the next step is, of course, to extinguish them. And that's something that historically has been, you know, had had horrible consequences. Yeah. Well, I'm Jewish. I know that story very well. So. Oh, yeah. So 
we know, like especially the Jewish experience, which is it cannot be compared to anything else, of course, because the the difference between the Muslim community is that it's much, much bigger and it has a lot of nations and it has a lot of money. Whereas the Jewish community in Europe, when the Holocaust happened, was they had nowhere to run, which is sort of the worst nightmare you can think of. That all of a sudden Europe, and it wasn't the first time we know that, got that idea that a group in Europe was not human and they were going to be extinguished. And I mean, I think it's very disgusting that in Europe today, the memory is so short, that same kind of discussion is sort of re-emerging. I mean, come on, it's not even a hundred years since that happened. What are you referring to in particular? Oh, I think, I mean, I would refer to the whole political climate as being sort of painting out different groups Mm. that have no voice. And here is, that is what's disgusting. I mean, the people that are least in power being blamed for the problems. It's such a convenient way for people in power to operate, to blame people that have no voice for the problems. And I, I think it's also, I mean, it's a, for us as a general public, it's a, we should absolutely be very alert to that. Because, I mean, is that really, does that make sense that the people that have no power should be blamed? I mean, by the people in power? I mean, then I would, I mean, my rhetorical, going back to my films, I would say that the image of them being provocative or political, it's actually, I want to engage in a discussion within. So the reason why I do films like Boy From Heaven or The Nile Hilton Incident or Cairo Conspiracy is actually that I would have loved to see that film when I was 15 or 16. But there was no film like that. Yeah. It's funny just thinking about artist consensus, especially in difficult times. They once asked Robin Williams, the late comedian, on a German TV show, and they said to him, Robin, why do you think it is that there's not so many German comedians in present day? And he says, well, have you ever thought that you killed them all? (laughs) You know, we're just thinking about how important the voice is of artists in difficult times and comedians of, of course, artists. But my larger point I wanted to make about what you're saying is, you know, sometimes I feel church and state aren't so far apart. And what I mean by that is the prefrontal cortexes in people's brains aren't so developed. And when you get addicted to the juices of power and the spirit of ego, you make corruptible decisions. And you see that in your film, Cairo Conspiracy. I don't see a difference between the decisions people make in either state security or the Al-Azhar University or the Muslim Brotherhood or in the US Senate. They're all making the same decisions based on leverage of power and ego and a construct of Mm -hmm. How do I get what I want? And it doesn't matter who who is extinguished. It doesn't matter which migrant is put into which detention center. It doesn't matter which migrant dies on a boat or whatever argument you want to make. I can't agree with you more with that. I think that you're putting your finger on it. What I am interested in and what I think is interesting to highlight or to sort of describe is sort of the human sort of strive for power. I mean they will dress it up in any (laughs) sort of, if you take Bibi right now in Israel, 
it's interesting. In the disguise of being sort of like, yes, I'm trying to reform the country by changing to remove the power from the courts. Mm. And oh, by accident, that means that I don't need to stand my day in court. It's how convenient. And of course, if he's pushed, he's going to say, no, it's to protect the Jewish people. I mean, he'd even go that far. It's funny with uh, Carol Conspiracy and also with the Nile Hilton incident that those films work so well in Israel because it's interesting all over the Middle East right now. There is this relationship between religion and politics and that dance, that toxic dance. Mm. And it has not so much to do with God, of course. God is not present. I mean, whether you're an atheist or not, let's put it this way. God is not present. And like Nietzsche said, well, whether, I mean, Nietzsche put it like God is dead, but we still live in his shadow. I think that in many ways, politicians will use anything to try to get to people's hearts, not to their mind, but to their heart. In that argument of uh, whose side is God on, I think that in Boy from Heaven or Carol Conspiracy, I've, I've explored that sort of heads on because everyone in the film is religious. I didn't give myself sort of an out by sort of creating an atheist. All the characters are religious, which means that, yeah, you take that out of the equation, basically. Yeah. Can you just, for our audience, because I think I want people to enjoy the ride here, especially we're talking about such, you know, very contentious topics like politics and religion. For those that haven't seen it, can you give us a elevator pitch or a short synopsis about what Cairo Conspiracy is about? It would really help. Yes. So uh, Cairo Conspiracy is about a young man who is the son of a fisherman. He's the first in his family to get the higher education. He lives in a, in a small village, and he's never been outside of this village, and he gets a scholarship to study at the most prestigious religious university in Sunni Islam called Al-Azhar, which is in Cairo. And so for the first time in his life, he travels outside of his village, goes to this university to study, to become an imam. But once he's been there for a week, the Grand Imam, or Sheikh Al-Azhar, which is the most prominent the voice in Sunni Islam dies. And what happens when he dies is that the Supreme Council of Scholars gets together. That's a group of like 30 imams to elect a new grand imam. And of course, state security in Egypt, they cannot let it be a coincidence who becomes the next grand imam. They want to have a voice there and they want to have a seat at the table and they can't. So the head of state security asks, who do we have on the inside? And they don't have anyone on the inside. So they decide to build up someone from scratch, someone without connections, and they choose this young student. Mm. So it becomes this sort of spy thriller inside of this religious university. Yeah. And we won't give away any spoilers because I think a lot of people would love to know what happens next. What what um is it true, Tariq, this might be hearsay, but are you a persona non grata in Egypt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been like that since the film I did before this film. 
but it has not helped with this film. I shot this film in Istanbul because I knew that I couldn't shoot it in Egypt. And unfortunately, Egypt has become one of the worst dictatorships in the region. I mean, there is absolutely no tolerance for any kind of criticism of the army or the leadership of the country. Can you just for us give us a sense of your heartbreak around a specific time in history? If we only go back, what is it, 2023 now, and we we go back to 2011. You know, we say history has the memory of of a goldfish, but what I mean by that is Hosni Mubarak was in power for 30 years. He kept the country in emergency rule. We declared because, you know, he didn't want any protests, the same as it is now. But you had a break in that period, especially when a period came called the Arab Spring. And the world over, it started in Tunisia and swept like an epidemic through the region. People thought this was the moment when the Middle East breaks out. This is the moment when the Arab people finally, or those in autocratic states, have a voice where they can march on with the spirit of democracy. Uh, you're talking about Sisi, which came in and has basically kept the status quo alive. How do you feel about the remnants of the Arab Spring and the fact that it wasn't to create that transformational change that it was supposed to? Yeah, I know it's, it's so heartbreaking. And it's, I refuse to be cynical about it because I think that cynicism is one of the most sort of toxic things we as human beings can engage in. But what happened was that young people in Egypt, they did this amazing thing 2011, because they did a peaceful revolution. I mean, a lot of people sacrificed themselves in that revolution. I mean, there are still a lot of Egyptians that were young in 2011 that are blind because the police shot rubber bullets into their eyes when they were peacefully dismantling one of the most brutal dictators. And uh, first they defeated police. And when the army was ordered out, the army refused to open fire. And it was historical. I think the whole world witnessed this beautiful thing with young people sort of saying, we want the future. We want to take back our future. And we're, we are ourselves going to take responsibility. But what happened was that in the coming months after the revolution, it was clear that I mean, 30 years of brutal dictatorship, there was no organizations. There was only two organizing bodies in Egypt. One was the army and the other was the Muslim Brotherhood that had underground created this network. Now, so, and the rest of the world, in a very cynical way, the big powers, they had absolutely no interest in real democracy in the Middle East and in Egypt. And we've seen that over and over again. So what happened was that they started to bet on these two different sides, the army or the brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So the brotherhood won the first round, right? The Egyptians rejected them very quickly because Egypt is a country, it's a very old country, and Egyptians do not identify themselves as, in first and foremost, a Muslim country. They consider themselves Egyptians. It's Egypt with its history, with its different minorities, all that. So quickly, this second wave began of protests that was real. It was real protests. But of course, the army saw this opportunity. Now it's a time where we can grab power. Mm. 
and financed by the Arab Emirates and indirectly Saudi Arabia, they created a coup d'etat and El Sisi was very popular at the time. It was real. He was very popular. And I think people were also very tired of the chaos in the country. So they were willing to let him take the wheel. So, I mean, he won the election. I mean, there was no real other options, right? And very quickly after he got into power, he just closed the window of freedom. And he not only closed it, sealed it and made sure that there was not going to be any more revolutions. Mm. And the army effectively took over every single aspect of Egyptian life, which has turned the country into a disaster. Mm. And this is like, I mean, it's just to look at inflation, unemployment. It's not in a good state because the army is not good at running private business. And right now the army is estimated to have 30% of the country's economy. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about almost like North Korea. Yeah, I can see the currency was devalued. I also saw a story last week where the Egyptian police were using fake grinder accounts to crack down on the LGBTQ community. Are you on Nietzsche's side? Do you, more of your personal view? I'm a big Nietzsche guy. I'm a big Nietzsche guy, but I'm a, he's misunderstood, right? I think I lean very much towards some of his ideas about, I mean, his ideas are also dangerous. It's very difficult because like, but I like dangerous ideas in the sense that I like to sort of challenge myself. I think from an artist's point of view, it's interesting because, for example, he says, you should do what's right, not because it means anything, but because it's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a sort of an interesting concept. Where it's just funny because you mentioned that cynicism is a dangerous language, and I think that for me, Nietzsche is the ultimate cynic. Yeah, there is something to that. Where I think that as an artist, you balance that constantly. You have a discussion inside of your head, and that discussion you try to sort of externalize it with some form of art, right? That. Otherwise, you go crazy. And I mean, there is many examples of that in history of artists going crazy. I mean, I always try to explain it to my wife that when we're on holiday, I'm not allowed to bring my laptop to write, for example. Mm-hmm. That's almost like locking in someone that has taken LSD into a cell, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, without the pen. If I just have a pen, I can get it out. I can get it out of my head. Yeah. So, and I think Nietzsche himself had that issue, where it's like the discussion just continued. But I must say that if we're talking about, for example, religion, it is, for example, I'm also on Dostoevsky's side. I think that Dostoevsky is maybe a more where Dostoevsky, of course, was very religious, but he has also written the best arguments for atheism, Mm -hmm. which is a paradox. But I mean, it is if you have an honest discussion with yourself where you don't just sort of, I'm not so interested in debate in the sense that I am not a politician. I don't have to win voters. I'm much more interested in a discussion where we honestly can sort of move the needle. And I mean, if you can convince me like of something that I didn't think was possible. I mean, I'll give you just one example that 
Milos Forman said that if you make a film where you say that one plus one is two, you have wasted people's lives, two hours of people's lives. They know that. One- Trust me, I know. I watch Hollywood films all the yeah, time. Yeah, so, so you know that. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. Why did you need two hours to convince me of what I already know, right? Ashton Kutcher tells me that every time. Yeah, but then he said, if you tell a story where one plus one is three, and you convince me after two hours that that's actually true, then you've given me a film that's worth watching. And that is sort of the mission, right? To actually see, is it possible to tell people something that they didn't think that they would ever believe? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at filmmaking. When you look at the world just outside of the Arabic world, are you inspired or are you concerned? I mean, there is so much volatility and instability, not even in politics, but if we look in different areas, such as social demographics, the economy, you don't even have to be a big thinker or a thought leader to understand that a lot of things are in flux right now. How do you view the world through Tariq Saleh's eyes right now? (laughs) I'm extremely optimistic as a human being. I have a big optimism in me. I mean, and as a big optimist, I must say that these last years have been very tough because so much of the story that is being told is a doomsday story, right? It's a story about doomsday. But my knowledge of religion makes me also a little bit less concerned. Maybe I should be more concerned than I am. But the human mind creates a doomsday. That is sort of built into our sort of narration, the end, right? And I think it is because we need to, for us to understand the world, we need to have an end. And of course, this end should then be connected to some sort of morality, what we have to do in order to avoid this end. But in religion, the end will happen. But the question is how you will be judged on the doomsday, all right? Like the scientific version of that is, of course, something like climate change, right? And if we do not act now, if we don't act morally, the world will cease to exist or become this horrible place. Now, it sounds like I'm saying that I don't believe it. I believe it 200%. I believe that this is happening. I mean, I, I believe in science. But I also believe that we as human beings have all possibilities to come together and do incredible, almost impossible things. Mm -hmm. We are a species that can actually overcome our own biology, which is incredible. I think it's Jung who said, we can control nature, but we cannot control our own nature. And that is sort of the contradiction in us as human beings. So we could solve all these problems. And I think that's the frustration, right? We could create an equal world. We could create sort of the best time to yet to come. But the concept of that is also an idea that is a little bit narcissistic, in my opinion. Because when my grandmother in the Nile Delta 1910, convinced her parents when she was a little girl 
and her parents couldn't read and write, that I want an education. And she managed to convince them to get an education, 1910. That was a miracle. I mean, that was as big of a step as for Armstrong to take a step on the moon. It is this incredible thing that human beings have to overcome where they are and who they are. And I think that is extremely inspiring. And when I see my girls, you know, I have two girls, one four-year-old and one seven-year-old. I am filled with hope because they're so intelligent and funny and they're also good people. And I would say I wouldn't even take credit for it. I think they're better than I am. So if I, for example, spit out the chewing gum on the (laughs) ground, which is embarrassing (laughs) that I do, then my seven-year-old says, Dad, what are you doing? Why are you throwing a chewing gum on the ground? You know, you're destroying nature. Yeah. Just to finish, for our audience, we'd love to know, the Cairo Conspiracy opens in the UK on April 14th, and I'm sure people will love it. What's next for you? What's on the horizon? Oh, wow. I am writing a television series together with Bo Willeman, who created House of Cards, and that's, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. We, it's like, we have so much in common. We come from the same background. He's also a painter who became a writer, who became a filmmaker and a TV creator. So I can't tell you what it's about, but it's a very fascinating thing. Amazing. Tariq Saleh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, getting to know your world and getting to know you as a person. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you. Hey there, this is Ari Stein, and you've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and to bearvalue.com for their production work. Make sure you just sign up to my newsletter on my website and subscribe to my podcast on Apple and Spotify to get notifications of when my next podcast will drop.